This episode of Doing Disney, we deep dive into what I think is one of the most underrated modern classics of the Disney era. We're talking 2001's Atlantis, possibly the most requested live action remake, but will we ever get one? We shall find out. Theme song guy. On this podcast, we let it go, because Hakuna Matata and the bare necessities will always be our guide to infinity and beyond. All it takes is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. We know that life is better under the sea, because on this podcast, we do Disney. Hi there, I'm your hostess with the mostest, Kelly Meehan, and welcome to this episode of Doing Disney. This is going to be a good one. I've got my extra special guest, one Mr. Kangaroo Jake himself, Jake Marangoni. Thank you for joining me today. Sup, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. I, uh, first, uh, so, so, what's, the, what's the saying? Long time caller, first time, or oh, no, long time listener, first time caller. That's the one. Oh, so happy we finally got you on the pod. Start at the beginning. Atlantis The Lost Empire, released in 2001, directed by Gary Drostel and Kirk Wise, starring Michael J. Fox as Milo, Cree Summer as Keita, and James Garner as Colonel Rourke. Set in the 1910s, linguist and Atlantis scholar Milo Thatch is approached by a mysterious benefactor to step into his grandfather's shoes and find the lost city of Atlantis. The crew is led by Colonel James Rourke and comprised of a colourful cast of characters all at the top of their field. They explore the depths and come across the sunken city of Atlantis, an ancient civilization powered by crystals and even by the day standards extremely advanced. We meet Princess Keita, who is intrigued by these newcomers as her people and her culture are starting to suffer. When Milo helps decipher relics that describes the hearts of Atlantis, we find that the team are actually mercenaries and looking to sell ancient artefacts. The heart of Atlantis turns out to be a large crystal that powers Atlantis and melts with those of royal blood, such as Keita, who is drawn to it and becomes crystallised. Rourke attempts to take Keita back to the surface, but is overthrown by Milo and leading the Atlanteans and the crew to save Keita. In the end, Milo stays in Atlantis with Keita to help bring the civilization back to life. Such a good topic. Like, we back and forth between of two, and then you're like, no. This is the one. It has to be Atlantis. Jake, what's your yeah. first memories of the film? Um, so the thing is, I was actually trying to think about this the other day. I for some, this is a movie that like of there's I have like thirty movies when I was a kid that I would just watch on repeat over and over again, and The Lost Empire was one of them. Um, for some reason, I never actually owned like the VHS or on or Blu-ray or DVD. Like I just remember going to my local uh, Video Easy store all the time, and there's one in Stratton, that's like a two minute drive from where I live um, or lived uh, where I would just rent the movie every now and then and just watch it all the time. And because back in the days when you had to rent a movie for like a week or so, you could be able to watch it like two, three times. So that's what I would do. And I remember owning, we'll talk, we'll talk about this later, but I owned Milo's Return on DVD. So that was a movie that I got had the chance to see whenever I wanted. And uh, so I just remember at, I guess I was like, five four five six and just key aspects of the movie i still remember watching as a kid and being like this is just so beautiful um of a movie and it's just one that i've always just I've, has stuck with me over the years and i go is that just a film that people still talk about and then realizing oh wait a minute no it didn't it didn't do the best at the box office um but i just yeah i've always been in love with the movie and its sort of culture and, and visual animation uh, its style you and I have very similar feelings, which is awesome. I 
too have written video easy in my notes. So for any international <laughs> listeners, video easy, Australian video chain, sub it in for your blockbuster, your Hollywood video. In my yeah. town, we had video easy first and then blockbuster came along, but we were video easy loyalists by that point. So Absolutely. I will always say video easy. <laughs> uh, so I'm born 91. I would I'd say I caught most of what we call the Disney Renaissance of the early 90s on VHS, but got to see Hercules and Mulan in the cinema. Mulan, I sort of sort of call the end of the Renaissance, and Tarzan. Not Tarzan. Of, no, Tarzan. I call the beginning of the hit or miss experimental period because I saw Tarzan in, in cinemas, yeah. and was not impressed. And um, one of my previous guests, Hannah, brought up an amazing point that that soundtrack, as amazing as it is, it's not sung by the characters, and I think that really does start to diverge. It's that you mm. have Phil Collins scoring it, and so that's where I'm going to start saying it's an experimental time for disney because that's not the time. first movie because a lot of those movies in that time after tarzan were like we're just gonna get a musician to just do the Very songs much. like the brother bears the one that comes out to me um Phil Collins again. <laughs> i did want to mention it because i'm glad you mentioned it i was going to mention how you know there's different eras of disney from golden age silver age bronze bronze age and then the dark ages with the black cauldron finally we get the renaissance with little mermaid and then a lot of people love the a lot, a lot of people love the Renaissance era, and I totally yeah. understand that. Um, but I always have a soft spot for the experimental era, as it's it's called a bunch of stuff and um, post Renaissance. Um, mm. I really been a big fan of like just generation sort of like eras and how you know animation and Me art too. specifically sort of uh, evolves. How it flows and cycles, yeah. And absolutely. it's just a weird thing how it just happens. And with the and I I just it's I think a part of it is just nostalgia because you know, I was yeah. born in ninety eight. I was a child in the in the 2000s, so I got to see a lot of movies that were sort of catered towards me and how they were just trying new stuff. And that's what I find kind of interesting about that sort of era is, you know, it's specifically stuff like, like um, and it's not just sort of like storytelling, but also just I mean, cultures. They start to focus on different aspects. And um, with Atlantis specifically, it's like we're going to have a new style for the movie uh, that was inspired by um, Mike McNola, his sort of a comic book aesthetic, um, the guy who created Hellboy. So you really see that through the animation and the character designs, which I really like. Um, but during that time, they were just trying weird stuff. And some of it, I reckon, like hit like Atlantis, um, Treasure Planet and um, Fantasia 2000. But you had, and Lilo and Stitch, which is the most conventional, I would say, of that, of those films. Uh, but then you have Home on the Range and mm. Bolt, which uh, mm. not you know. I love that they took chances, but some of them didn't uh, didn't work. It's so funny you mentioned like Lilo and Stitch. That's one I've come back to many years later because seeing it as cinemas, I didn't enjoy it oh, on first okay. watch. Did not enjoy it. Was wasn't for me because I love my Disney princess musicals. So yeah. I enjoyed Emperor's New Groove. That's a straight up comedy, and I think that very much appeals to kids. Yeah. Um, and then we get Dinosaur, which I missed completely in cinemas and did not see till later. And I'm I still have my VHS tape of Dinosaur. <laughs> oh. If we were doing that, I would bring it and show you. But, um, yeah, that's one I remember watching all the That time. is one we – that's like 10 years into the pod we might hit Dinosaur. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, Sign me up, 10 years, tw 2032. You know I'm here. But um, coinciding with this period, what I was when I was reflecting on it, I'm like what really kicked off this era is the rise of DVDs and of home media. Yeah, so I remember having Atlantis. I didn't see it in cinema. I saw it at a birthday party, which is a very odd time oh. to see it because I remember trying to watch it and being sucked into the action and the animation, especially the the, the Leviathan scene. 
but not being able to hear it, not being able to connect. So it's one I sought out on DVD and I remember buying it at one of those video easy stock take sales when they would clear out all their old stock. (laughs) So I know it's video easy because it had a big orange sticker with the A on it. (laughs) That was hard to take off the stickers as well sometimes. (laughs) It just rips half of it. But at this period as well, we ha- we really focused on um, two-disc special editions. And you had amazing special features for a lot of the Disney movies. So I remember the special features disc was you exploring the hub of the Atlantis when they were, like, docked in the bay. Oh, yeah. And you would click around, like, the submarine. I think it's the Ulysses or something like that is what the ship's Ulysses, called. Ulysses, yeah, the ship, yeah. Yeah, so those are my memories. And I had the exact same thing as well. It's one I've always liked but hadn't gone back to for a while. So in my brain, I'm like, was this actually good or am I just nostalgic for it? But re-watching it twice in the last year, I'm like, no, this movie's awesome. I this like movie this movie. This movie is great. Um, I, I rewatched it last night. And the reason, so I'll just, uh, you knew I, you were going to have me on. So this, is, this might be long as possible. We'll see how this goes. I'll try and contain myself. But I was going to mention how we were, how I was sort of torn between two movies. We had originally mm-hmm. thought of of Treasure Planet, and I'd watched that last year for uh, the podcast Blank Check, a chef up that. Um, but I, over time, I started to think, well, let's, I, I haven't seen Atlantis in, like, forever, and I really want to go back to it, and it's a movie I remember having a deep nostalgia and a deep love for, so we decided to go with that, and I rewatched it last night, and it was just so refreshing to see it after so many years, and just from start to finish, and going, oh my god, like, the storytelling beats, and just the characters, and What's so interesting about the movie is that they decided to, because it's, it's, I'm going to forget the directors. It's Kirk Wise and Gary. Yeah, um, Trout, Gary Trustdale. Trustdale. I always get the last name wrong, but like they did Beauty and the Beast and they were, and um, Hunchback mm-hmm. of Notre Dame. And they were huge mm-hmm. factors of the Renaissance era, which was, we're going to, we're going to reinvent the Disney princess. We're going to have, we're going to go full-fledged musicals back again. And this is them going, well, we've done that. Let's try something new. And for some reason, that and this isn't just with them two, but with uh, with Disney, I guess, and their films, they tried to make boy centric movies during yeah. the two thousands. Yeah. I mean, people know. I guess they were trying to sort of get that demographic, like a lot. Like, and I think boys. I watched the Disney Princess movies. I think they they tried to cater to both. They were trying to cater to a, a, a more male centric um, audience, and so that's why you get films like Treasure Planet and and, and Lances, which I think had elements that sort of evolved over the, the the making because you still have a Disney princess technically with Kida in the movie. <laughs> um, but it's just sort of interesting how they sort of tried something different and how that kind of led to that sort of era. And now I think Disney just have figured out, oh, well, we've bought Star Wars and Marvel, so now we can really cater towards that sort of male audience um, while still having the Disney films with, like, you know, Frozen 2 and Moana and those, um, and then Cancer, like, being that biggest film since mm. Frozen. But, like, that sort of audience where they can, now they can really play and it's, like, Disney just have so much uh, pro, uh, uh, content. Oh, it's the, it's the Infinity Gauntlet now. Absolutely. Like the Infinity <laughs> Gauntlet, yeah. Um, so it's kind of interesting how that sort of the development started um, with, with Atlantis and, and Treasure Planet, so. Yeah. I really like how you touch on like the artwork of Mark, Mike Mignola as well because when I was l- reflecting on this, I'm like, this is a period piece. And I'm wondering yeah. if the success of Titanic has something to do with this as well, where it's like we're going Ooh. to go, we're going to do our big ship drama, a little bit of romance, that one. 1910s, so that's just, yeah. Not, and the 1910s, it, it really is. It's just a period piece. But let's get into it. It's my favourite part because you'll see. 
What is your favorite scene from the film? So I, I, I had one scene already locked before I even watched the movie, and it was really great to rewatch the scene. Um, it's when Keita merges with the, uh, the crystal, the mother crystal, oh, yeah. um, the heart of Atlantis, as they call it. Um, it's just, it's, it's no dialogue. It's just the visuals of the animation and the score, which we'll get into, but it's, it's just a perfect complement of both styles and how you just see like the crystal light up and her eyes. And then she speaks in that like Atlantean language and then just her walking on the water and then being taken like up into the crystal and merging with it and then coming down as this just like crystalline figure as like the stone faces fall to the ground and just the whole animation style of it is really good. And what really works for the, not just that scene, but the whole movie and the visual style is the fact that they decided to shoot it in an anamorphic uh, frame, which format, I won't go too much into it technically, but um, it just, it's such a, it's a wider uh, uh, format. Yes. So you yeah. have those black, you have those black bars and just, just to emulate that sort of David Lean uh, style mm-hmm. which I think works for the movie to take place in the 1910s and just makes it feel so much more epic and like there's certain shots that pan out where it just looks so beautiful but during that scene there's a couple of great wides where I'm just like this is so beautiful absolutely this is where that Indiana Jones feel really starts to get into it like this oh, is yeah. our Raiders of the Lost Ark opening the arc moment <laughs> where we've heard of this treasure and they've tried to find it and as you mentioned like when she starts to work on water and everyone's just staring like what is happening this is where the movie takes a sharp turn for me because I think this is legitimately scary I think this is quite yeah. terrifying this scene and the scenes that follow really turn it's been a bit of a slow burn until mm-hmm. now, like it's been the movies felt at one pace, maybe a few comedic moments, a few action scenes with a little violent, but this now is a this kicks off the third act. Those masks start spinning and my heart starts wearing. And yeah, it's you see this figure come down and you just don't know what to expect and you don't know what's going to happen next either. So yeah, I, I we, agree. We know from the beginning how it, it um the the crystal merged with uh, Keita's mother, so mom, you know yes. it's a parallels there with, with the um like the, the mother and then to the daughter, and it's like it picks of someone of royalty, so you know kind of what's going to happen, and she could be lost to the crystal forever. Um, but just knowing how she, it's just she's still in that sort of humanoid form mm. as the crystal is just so like just really just great visuals and great ideas, which I um, I really really love about this movie. Picking up with the visuals, that colour palette and that under-the-sea cave, very um, Aladdin in the Cave of Wonders when he's walking oh, yeah. up to the lamp, like those darker tones, those cave and water features, they are very beautiful to look at. Like the part they chose for it to be under the under the city, it's a cool Yeah, setting. they say it's like, I'm trying to say, they say it's like a faucet where it goes up and down, like when they're trying to go to the cave there's that whole cave area and then them actually traveling through to find Atlantis. And I really love the colors. I mean, I'm a big fan of the color blue. (laughs) It's my favorite color. And I feel people say that just like, oh yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of this, but I just legitimately love the color blue. And I mean, Atlantis, the ocean, there's just, there's so much um, great colors. And uh, it's just, it's one of the most underrated, like most underrated in in terms of beauty for an animated film. Like there's the standouts, especially from like, um, Miyazaki and the anime and they always have tend to go like crazy with its animation and detail but Atlantis and a lot of the other Disney movies from like like Fantasia and stuff like they really have such a uh, a great color palette and um 
just great visuals to be able to animate, which I think really works for, and also just works in favor of the culture of Atlantis, which they put a lot of effort in, which I, I think is really cool. Like they, they made a whole language, um, which is yeah. really just like, the guy who, who made the Klingon uh, language in Star Trek made the Atlantean and just the way that it's all designed, just it feels real and it feels like omniversal of all, all the languages that came before. It's just, I just, sorry, I'm just talking about everything already. I love it. Because absolutely, well, very Milo Thatcher view. That's what Milo would say, mm-hmm. where like it was the root of all language. So of course it has yeah. to be, but I agree. This is like our avatar before we get avatar. In a oh, sense, yeah. like they've created their I, whole culture and they've Kita, really made like, it. Definitely. Sorry. Um, goes yeah, no, go. Make that point, please. <laughs> reminds me a lot of Natiri in that she's yes. like, someone who's like, curious about these like outsiders, um, especially how she sort of like um, connects with um, Milo and just like, we don't, this is our culture, but we don't like really understand it and yeah. how they sort of integrate them into their culture. Um, a little different Atlantis, at, at Avatar, they know they, what their culture is, but that's something that I find really interesting about Atlantis is that they're a dying sort of uh, yeah. uh, people and their their culture. And that's, sort of, um, yeah, I just really, just really like we'll The way that it was so technologically advanced for their time and now that they've been under the sea for so long that the rest of society is not, not close to catching up, but somewhat oh, yeah. has evolved to be closer to them and that they've lost their way when they were so far ahead is an interesting comment on hubris, you know. Yeah, um, I really like that, um, what was I going to say, I really like the first scene where they finally see Atlantis and they're trying to communicate with them and they're saying, like, all yes. the languages and you realise, oh, wait, so Atlanteans, they, were sort of, they had the mother language and all these other languages kind of came off them while they're still able to understand, well, they know English and, and, and French. There's the funny scene with, uh, with Mole. Um, but uh, they just, yeah, it's just sort of, I, I think a big part of why I love the movie is the, the culture of Atlantis feels real. And I'm a big fan of just like hidden civilizations. And this one just mm. has such a, a unique sort of look and feel. And the whole mythology behind the, uh, the heart of Atlantis, the crystal that gave them longevity and, uh, and the and energy and power and like ad- make them advance even for you know sixteen thousand BC or whenever because I think, I think they say Keita's like seventy eight thousand years old just oh, like holy ancient. crap ancient ancient, ancient <laughs> stuff and the fact that it's so technologically advanced and I think that's something I really like about the fact that it takes place in the nineteen tens is that you get to see the steampunk uh, technology of, the, of human uh, civilization and how it's that against the Atlantean and how it still feels uh, like dated, which is really cool. I like that sort of uh, that's that that choice. Hmm. I'm gonna pick a scene that's gonna piggyback off of your scene. So hmm. after Kate has become the crystal, they put her in that metal container. They load her on the trucks. I don't have the exact quotes on me. I wish I did, but um. Basically, it's after you've had those gut-wrenching moments of finding out that the team are mercenaries. Yeah. And I feel that betrayal so hard. Even though even though I know it's coming now, like, it really turns my stomach because I have this shot where they pan to them all as a group and they just have all these evil smiles, evil grimaces, like, yeah, we're here to pillage and plunder It's all about the money. money. And these are characters you've come to really like because this cast of characters so varied, like great We will get into it. But after they've done the ransacking and pillaging, they're loading up the trucks and Milo says something like, it's all about the money to you guys, isn't it? Well, Audrey, you know, I hope you like your your, um, garage. You can open a second garage. You can open a second garage. 
I love that it's not Milo on his high horse. He's being scathing and cutting. And I like that because usually this is where you would start to throw your morals in. And mm. I think if it was handled that way, it loses the the sharpness of it a little bit because I think the script can be quite sharp at times. And then what I like as well is that there's no words. It's Audrey. You can see those words affect him as she tries to brush it off, as she puts on her grumpy face and looks forward in the car. And then again, you see her give in to it and she just gets out all happy, slams the door and walks over, looks at Vinny. Vinny does the same. Moliere does the same. Cookie does the same. Packard, we're all going to die, flicks the cigarette. (laughs) (laughs) And walks over. I really like that scene from Milo because he's been taking so much crap like for the entire movie because he's he's like the one outsider like these guys are all adventurers they they know what they're doing like it's he can talk the talk and they they walk the walk and that sort of like mentality and he's just like he's a bookish nerd who just is just knows all the theory but the practicality of things it's like they just are leagues uh above him and you see throughout this the film how they slowly start to bring him into their kind of group and when they discuss their um, their backstories and at the end of the day they're all just here for the money but you don't think they're going to to still be on Rock's side and we're going to take the heart of Atlantis how, how far they go Absolutely. how far they go and so the fact that they're still with him um you, you go holy shit but then there's that turn there's that change where they've like deep down knowing Milo and knowing who they are they realize that this is wrong and even that's what Audrey says like this Audrey is wrong says. Rock and you know it like it's it's been no one got hurt time, before, but... so I like no. that. Like, they do have a code, they have a line, and well, some people got hurt, but not, no one that they knew. <laughs> 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 so, no, civilizations didn't die, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I do like that everyone starts to come over to Milo's side, and like that's the line there. So then Rock and Helga are off, and the bridge blows. And mm. it's so funny because I'm looking at the scene of them standing, I'm like, Where's Sweet again? They, they obviously decided to leave Sweet behind no matter oh, what because he was turning yeah, to the king. Well. I think because he's he's helping the king. So he yeah. he's still there. I think he's, he sort they of They were ready to pack up and leave. Turn, yeah. I guess maybe he he was, I mean, we find out later Rock is, is okay betraying anyone, even Helga. So, like, yeah. Well. Uh, are there any other scenes that stand out to you? Uh, I really, I, I mean, there's the Firefly sequence, which is just, so weird the fact that these aren't just they're literal fireflies and the fact they can just cause fires i really like how that leads to them finding like the the tunnel and, and that sort of sequence um the leviathan sequence is really good it's it's also so crazy because um rock says like they started off with like 200 men and women and then it's down to like less than 50 um from that leviathan tech alone um which is sort of interesting of uh, like I really love the opening sequence. You just see the explosion. Like, it just opens up and then, bang, they're being chased. And it just cuts off the uh, part of, of Atlantis. You see Kida's mother merging with the crystal and them sinking into the ocean. It's like, okay, we we all know what Atlantis is and how it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a city under the ocean. And we get to see that sequence play out. There's the whole opening title sequence and um, title uh, text with um, from Plato saying like in a, in a yes. single day, Atlantis sunk into the ocean. And Atlantis, as in general, is is a nice uh, myth uh, legend that Plato had come up with. And the fact that there is a lot of inspiration from Plato and that we're going to see the sequence of them going underwater. And it's not just an underwater city; they like live in sort of like like just a pocket. 
under the ground yeah, and absolutely. a bubble and um just it just yeah looks really great and that whole sequence just sets up like what's gonna happen um yeah i would i'm trying to think of other sequences but i think let's, those are the main ones yeah let's touch on leviathan again because i think that's a really mm. key important scene in the film and one of the biggest successful scenes because how good is it is that um milo's reading about it in the journal obviously like there's this creature the leviathan and we're hearing atlantis yeah. this is such an easy way they could have drawn a big a monster a big wiggly boogly something mm. that sleeps in the bottom of the ocean but the fact that we hear it first and we hear the metal scraping, Packard's picking it yeah. up and puts it over the stereo, like that's a dagger to my heart when I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, that's <laughs> terrifying to hear this screeching sound. And the fact that they chose to lean into those steampunk roots and they make, make it, like it a, a metal, metal machine, monster, yeah. so cool. I still think yeah. that's a cool idea. It also just asks, it just, it asks so many questions, like how did mm. this creation come to be? Like. We find out there's a little bit of history with the with with Atlantis and that I don't know if it's specifically the king or past kings, but Atlantis sort of used to make weapons and the Leviathan seems to have been one and it's just like rogue or is it just it just wanders near the entrance and the fact when um it's not just like a, a creature that looks like a lobster, it's a mechanical creature like the Atlanteans made it and now it's just sort of wandering at the entrance so to stop anyone and there's that great moment when uh, Milo realizes all oh, the shipwrecked is all from yes. like different areas. Like that's just like it's been there for years and it will still be there to stop anyone. Yeah, it's it's the Cerberus, so to speak. Absolutely. Uh, one quick scene I want to bring up very, very quickly. Um, I really like the scene where Milo meets Preston Whitmore because I think John oh, McHoney yeah. does a really good job. And we talked about colours before. The fact that this is all that blue reflection from the fish tank in a mm. dark scene, I think is so cool. We meet him, he's doing his yoga and he's, he's pushing so Milo cool. like his yoga. <laughs> we meet him and he's, he pushes Milo to like, no, it's real, it's real. That's just what I wanted to hear clicks the button on his fish tank and the little the, the test, model yeah. of the We've got this all sorted. Up. It's all ready. You go, you go out tomorrow. It's like, oh, shit. Like, all this time is just like, you're ready, especially since, and even um, Preston mentions that, yeah, you quit today. Like, he knows everything. And it's just, yeah. that's sort of, uh, that sort of, my cat, taken care of. <laughs> just right behind him. I love that the film is really funny, um, but it, there's, it, it, if there's very few, like, visual gags like that, when, when mm. that shows up, I was like, what I don't even couldn't I didn't even remember that when um but like just this, those type of um jokes I find really funny um but yeah it's all sorted he's got his clothes and everything it's uh it's really good. We also get that sentimentality because you get the connection to Thaddeus Thatch, yeah, Milo's oh, grandfather yeah. who introduced him and who was the one to help find the Shepherd Journal and things like that. So I'm always a sucker for what kicks off the film, what launches the plot. And that's this scene here. And I just, uh, yeah, that that glow of the fish tank is just really what resonates with me. Oh, yeah. Um, I really, speaking of uh, of his granddad, um, I really love when he looks at the photo and then it has that old timey sort of like film yeah. stock. Just like that's the memory that he remembers when he, when that was, that photo was taken. And he, he, he and I just love the animation style of little Milo, the way he just looks so adorable. I'm just like, oh, he looks so innocent. Um, and I really love when he takes the, the the helmet and it doesn't fit him. It goes down all the way, and then 
it cuts to him as a i assume he's like a what mid 20 year old or however old he is but he picks up the uh the helmet he's still got it and he puts it on it still goes down like nothing is, it still doesn't fit um which is sort of like a, a set a setup of the fact that he's not really an adventurer and he has to become one which is kind of yeah. cool but um yeah that whole sequence and just the, the fact that he loves his grandfather so much that he believes that there is an atlantis somewhere and the fact that it turns he was proven right so yeah you ain't never had a friend like me we mentioned it earlier this has such a cast of characters i know who stands out to me but jake i'm so intrigued who really stands out to you from the film who's uh, what's your number one draft pick it's 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 vincenzo vinnie yes yes it I, is i don't know if it's just my italian blood or just the fact that i just think he's the funniest person ever um oh my god i have like so many quotes just from him alone um it's just one of those things where I didn't even clue in that he was Italian when I watched it as a kid. I honestly thought he was German or Dutch. Or it's just because it's a very weird accent. Um, watching yeah, it now and realizing it's a flat that accent. It's, it's it's a very interesting accent. Um, I'm trying with the actors uh, Don Novello, who apparently did a lot of improv with Finney. So a lot of the lines that that he has is just him just coming up with it, um, which is good. But I just love the that fact that That makes a on, lot more sense, actually. Yeah, right. Like, all his jokes and stuff. Um, but there's... He's just so funny. He's a demolition expert. He just has so many bombs. They make so many jokes about the fact that he has so many, like, bombs. Where that, when they're, when they're um, in the volcano, it's like one explosion could could erupt the entire volcano. And they're just, like, pans to him. He's like, you already got a bit. <laughs> Oh, um, and I really just love, like, there's the one part where they, when Milo notices, like, the giant statue, and he's like, oh, it must have taken a thousand years to, uh, to, to create, and then just see the explosion, it just falling down, he's like, look at that, took me, like, ten seconds, eleven taps, <laughs> and stuff like that, and we talked about the scene where um, where the group um, uh, turn on, on Rourke and, and, and re- regroup with Milo, and he's like, we've done a lot of bad things, and he's, <laughs> and then uh, uh, let me bring up the quote so I get it right. Um, we've got a lot of things we're not proud of, robbing graves, plundering tombs, double parking, but nobody got hurt. Well, maybe somebody got hurt, but nobody we knew. That's, <laughs> that's that, that sort of stuff is fun when he's looking what he's bringing to the um, <laughs> the Ulysses, like gunpowder, natural yes, glycerin, notepads, fuses, wicks, glue, and paper clips. Mm-hmm. Big yeah, ones, you know, <laughs> not the not the office supplies. Like it's just he has so many great singers, and uh, I think that uh, yeah, he's just like he's just so funny. Like I know I know Mole is 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 the uh, the the com- the comic relief, but Vinny just has like the funniest stuff in the movie for me. Vinny is the standout in any scene he is in. I yeah. I find Mole grating, um, but mm. Vinny is just so deadpan it really butters my overall like that is the kind of humor i really get behind and a lot of the ones you mentioned like i just like even how it pronounces the word blue like it's it's the pronoun it's 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 just he know the actor knew when to take those moments and like too bad we don't have any natural glycerin <laughs> like it's yeah. so they, they did the whole joke with by the way he he's drinking water he's like oh my god did you just drink that that's natural glycerin don't move don't breathe don't don't do anything this is <laughs> so funny Oh man! So, yeah. And and his whole line, like I'll never forget that his family owns a flower shop with baby's breath. Shop. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's great. there's a funny part like the end when when they're leaving and he's like, "I'm gonna miss you. I'm gonna open my flower shop Monday to Friday, nine to five, Saturday to two. I mean, I think I'm gonna take Sunday off, and then 
uh, all of August, I'm going to take off. And I didn't know this at the time, but the funny thing about that line is that August in Italy, the whole month is a, you know, is a, pub, is a holiday. The whole month of August oh, is a holiday. Oh, that's apparently. funny. So that's really just clever that they were inc- they incorporated that into into the movie. But just <laughs> he's got the whole plan, and he, he just loves bombs. There's a whole story he has. But he went, I don't, I think the, he's like, he, uh, something blew up, and he's like, a gas leak, kaboom, gas leak, and he's like, that's why I, I love bombs. And so <laughs> he just wants to open a flower shop. It's just such a, a weird contrast with him as a demolition uh, expert. Like that's just so funny. It's so good. Uh, I think he's like a much needed addition to this cast. I think it is a mm. lesser film if he's not in it. I think it's not as a funny film if he's not in it. And he definitely absolutely. just gives you those moments of levity. So absolutely. Um, <laughs> someone who stands out to me, very mm. surprising. She's not in the film a lot. But when I think of this movie and the characters, I think of Vinny. And the other one that pops into my mind is Helga St. Clair. Sinclair, sorry. Yeah. Mm. So I love classic films. I very much enjoy film noir. And she's just a femme fatale. Straight out of it, yeah. She is the fatalist of femmes I've ever seen in a Disney movie. So I love her look with the side, almost Veronica Lake hair, the tank top, the the, um, mannerisms and the voice, like that vocal cadence is very of that period time, um, giving me that 1910s before the Roaring Twenties Art Deco style. Yeah. Uh, she's just a bombshell. She's a bombshell of yeah. a character. So when um, she's waiting in the dark for Milo in his apartment. In. Oh, what I wrote that down. That's so funny when she's oh, like. Um, are you Santa Claus? Yes. <laughs> I came down the chimney. Ho, ho, ho. I just <laughs> found but that really great. Just um, I'm just like, what? So she shakes off her dress as well. She goes, yeah. ho, ho, and then does the big shoulder shrug and, like, the strap drops. I'm like, go, girl. Like, get it. I love it. She reminisced for me as a, like, a definitely like a Bond girl, like 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 a Funka oh, Jensen yeah. from, from GoldenEye. Mm-hmm. And the, even though she has a little, she has a bit more humanity, we find that later when, when she realizes that Atlantis is actually filled with people. Like, this changes everything. And for all sake, this changes nothing. That's what she has that internal conflict, even though still to the end she sides with Rock um, until Rock betrays her. But she has that great part where he says nothing personal and then throws her off that hot air balloon sort of a contraption. And then she's yeah. like, still alive and just like re- re- repeats the line, nothing personal, and just blows up um, part of the, the, the hot air balloon. But there's, there's stuff like that. She, yeah, she's definitely an underrated character, especially from like. How, how colourful the other characters are. She's definitely a little bit more shaded, I guess you could say. Yeah, and she's not in it a lot because she's rock second, so she's in an authoritarian position. And this is like a movie I remember seeing as a kid going like, wow, like that woman is bossing people around and being awesome at it. So I just really, I've always liked this character. I think you use her enough. I don't need hmm. any more humanity than what they gave her. I like the notes that you touched on, but I think this character is awesome. Who else stands hmm. out to you in the film? Uh, I don't know if this is, I, I don't know if I fully am with this character, but, um, what's his, it, Mole? What's his, what's his full name? Giotto Molière. Yeah. 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 Um, he's definitely the, the most you touch the dirt? of the characters. <laughs> his, his whole thing with, because he's a digger and he, um, has, he just like is obsessed with dirt. Like there's that great scene where with his introduction, when he sees Milo and he like, he, pick, he picks up the dirt in his fingernail and is able to analyze like the compounds and all the like technical mumbo jumbo and figures out like who he is and where he's from. And he definitely goes a little bit out there. Like he's just, 
he's like a slob and just the fact that he just like loves digging i think that's one that's one thing i really like about the group of characters is that they each have that that one sort of trait that they just like turn up to 11 and just make them like a, a real part of the character and i think that's the whole idea behind them is that they're all the best of their sort of like um careers their their um their, their, their skills so the fact that this the greatest digger in the world is this eccentric uh french man is is it's pretty cool. And he's just like so small and he like looks like a mole. These weird eyes, like the way they could like come out and they can look around. It's just like, what is this design? Um, but I just really love <laughs> speaking of mole, I really love at the end when they're all saying goodbye to Milo and he's just got like that, give me a hug, like after he's just been digging yeah. and he's just like, uh, and he just pets him on the head. It's just like really funny stuff. He's kind of like a pet. Um, but he, has, he is yeah, like a pet. <laughs> he's hit or miss for me. He's got some jokes from like, uh, but um, he's he has he has good moments. Let's run. Let's do a quick run through on the rest of the team, then we'll touch on Milo and Keita. So let's yeah. talk about Sweet quickly. Joshua Sweet, Sweet, like what a great character. Yes, uh, I really like. He's just like the the kindest person. He's the one that you, yeah. even though he he's he has funny jokes again uh, towards Milo. He's just like the he's a nice guy. I really love his neck. Sort of uh, uh, the uh, Kairo moves. Yeah. moves. Um, I don't know why, but I always thought he'd laughed more. But I might be thinking of Doctor Hibbert from The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> I was getting a little bit of a reminder of him, um, but uh, that was just me. Um, but yeah, I do like how he's just yeah, he's a big fan of uh, of helping people and just the fact that he's a doctor and it's just it's cool to have someone like that on the team, especially how he sort of contrasts with a lot of the other people, but. He still works out. He, he still plays an important character in the movie. Yeah, he's the one that tells the crew, let's let Halloween. And I also like that he's just like a bit unhinged. It's like, you're like a sword, <laughs> can sword through a femur. And then we get that callback later when Audrey's trying to cut the chains. I thought you said this could sword through a femur. <laughs> like, it's great. <laughs> that's a good, yeah, there's so many good lines like that that Eureka. Uh, I just mentioned her, but Audrey, so cool to see a young oh, girl God. into cars, fixing it up, being awesome. Her sister's a boxing weight heavyweight champion. Like, it's oh great. my God. I, I wrote that down. I love that so much. She's talking about her that family and how great. she wanted two brothers, one to, to be a mechanic and the other to um, to be the world, world uh, heavyweight title. <laughs> so, what, so what happened? My sister's going for the title next week. It's just like, oh my God. That's, that's like if you're not looking for that joke, you don't get it. No, exactly. oh, absolutely not. Because it's like my dad wanted wanted boys, and you got my sister and I, and you're like, oh, okay. So they haven't lived up to his um to 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 her to um his the sort of uh, what he wants yeah. the expectations, yes. Um, and the fact that <laughs> her sister is doing everything, and she's still like trying to figure it out. I think I really like that, and the fact that she's definitely like she's the toughest, and she doesn't care about her age. Um, and she just wants to open up a garage, and I really love that small moment that uh, that she has with Milo when he's trying to fix the other digger, and he knows because he um, works the um, oh, the boiler, it, the, the boiler. Yes. So he knows a bunch of like the the, the techno lumbo jump uh, lingo, and is like talking of Audrey. And you, I was when I was young, and I always and it was rem- coming back to me rewatching it uh, last night. I always thought that they had a bit, bit more of a fling. But I guess she's a teenager, so I guess couldn't really do that. I don't know how old Milo is, but I always thought that that was sort of like a little thing. But I guess it's more of like a brother-sister sort of um, relationship that you kind of see throughout that. Um, but I really love how Pinch, as I know, um, what's it called? Two Sorry. for flinching. Um, two for yeah. flinching, um, which is, that's good. They bring that back at the end. Um, but yeah, she's uh, she's tough. I like that. Yeah, and I think she's looking after Milo's cat when they go back, which I think is really cool as, a, as well. They're sitting in the end scene in Whitmore's office. She's got a cat in her lap. Oh, yeah. I reckon it's Milo's cat. 
Mm, so that's cute. Yeah, so that makes sense. I didn't even think about that. Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I just, um, I rewatched the movie last night. I haven't noticed that. Sorry. <laughs> we have <laughs> Cookie. Not much to him, but Jim Barney, vocal legend. Oh, Jim Barney. Yeah. Does a good job oh, with it. Yeah, he's yeah. just like the, he's the cook. He's just like, makes disgusting food. Like, I feel like I've seen that joke like so many times. <laughs> Very much. Uh, similar with Wilhelmina Packard, the mm. like older lady who's on the telephone, but she's communications. But it's like a fun design and it's a fun character. <laughs> I really love her, like her, her introduction. It's like, uh, what's the line? It's, um, oh yeah, tonight's supper will be baked beans, musical program to follow. Who wrote this? Which is really good. Um, yeah, there's there's that really weird joke when they're all um, right before the um, the Firefly sequence, which is like I sleep in the nude, <laughs> <laughs> and then she's like you okay. and then and then uh, uh, Sweet gives um, Milo the um, the uh, oh my god, what's it called the uh, the the blind? Uh, what's it called when you go to sleep? The oh, night? the sleeping mask. The, blind the sleeping mask. The He's night. like careful. Yeah, she, she sleeps. She sleepwalks. <laughs> You're going to need this. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's get into our mains. Let's talk about Kida first. We'll save my life to mm-hmm. the end. What are our thoughts yeah. on Princess Kida? Because, like, this is definitely not a formalised, recognised part of the Disney brand princess, but she's someone who kicks a lot of butt and is, yeah. like, very prototype of Moana, where we get that she is going to lead the civilization. She wants to save her people. Like, I, I really like this character. I rewatch. There wasn't as much to her as I wish there could have been. I don't know if they fixed that in Milo Returns, but what are your thoughts on Princess Karadagash? Yeah, um, but you can call me Kita. Um, I I really loved the design of her. I love oh, yeah. Pre Summer's um, vocal performance. Yes. Um, she, I mean, she's one of the greatest uh, voice perform- actors ever. Like she, has so many characters. Um, but yeah, I always, I always, I had a, like a low key crush on Kita when I was when I was six, seven. Um, I just thought she was really, really cool. Um, and I love how she's she's not naive, but she's just very curious. Not just about Milo yeah. and the group, but also just the fact that she's trying to figure out what are, what Atlant what what is Atlantis's culture, um, and trying to figure out. Like how how we are dying, and the fact that she is totally a Disney princess because she has a, a strange relationship with her father who won't listen to her. Like, that's, <laughs> no, that's animal that's, no animal sidekick, no animal sidekick, and no song. Yeah, that's true. Like Moana and Little Mermaid, they just just above that on on all the, uh, the Disney princess <laughs> tropes. But yeah, I really do like how she is trying to figure out like the sort of technology, and she's there's that scene with with her and Milo where they're trying to figure out how to start like the. Uh, I don't know what it's like a hovercraft, but um, yeah. they got the crystal in, the hand in, and then turn turn right and then turn left. Um, but that's and that's all I really like. Also, there's that moment where they go underwater and they I think it's the back of one of the guardians. Oh, where you beautiful see, scene! Oh, it's really good. Just the fact that there's very little um, dialogue. Like they go into that small little air bubble and then go back down to look at the inscriptions and. That's when they figure out the heart of Atlantis. But I really love Kida and how her relationship with Milo sort of evolves, where they become, where she just shows him and he shows her sort of like their sort of like knowledge of Atlantis, and they both try to figure out what's going on and what the heart of Atlantis is, and that's how you kind of find out more about what Rourke is planning with that. Um, but there's yeah, just 
really just she's really interesting and just the fact that she she becomes a little sidetracked in the third act because she merges with the crystal so she's kind of left out of that action scene but i guess she's part of what creates the force shield at the end when the volcano erupts and covers atlantis so yeah but just really yeah i just really like the character a lot um and yeah there's definitely like just glimmers of Natiri from avatar kind of um, influenced, I reckon. Um, I reckon James Cameron was influenced by Atlantis there, but um, yeah, I really do. Like <laughs> it is it. an under the sea movie, so let's be real. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's a good point. Um, what I really like what you just said about how curious she is, and I like that you backpedal from the word naive because I, yeah, I don't think she's naive because she is a confident character and she's a yeah. womanly character as well. She's not young princess i don't know what's going on she has confidence and i think the scene that shows it best is when um milo's getting ready to talk to her with like i have a question for you and i'm not going to take mm. no for an answer she ambushes yeah. him holds him of mouth and very cheekily says to his face i have questions for you and i'm not going to take no for an answer like it yeah. is great and they don't just make her like they give her jokes like she's able to she can be a little quippy um towards mm. milo and the fact that she and i think the fact that they made the Atlanteans know English just makes it a lot easier for them to sort of relay and communicate. And like, yeah, she has some funny jokes. Like, I mean, there's the part with, with Mo when he's like, start to say stuff in French, which we don't know, but she just punches him. Like, and I think also just like the fact that she is definitely ready to take the throne from her father. Yeah. Like she's showing the confidence and be able to, um, to lead uh, her people, especially how she's like, I mean, the, we, we, we see um, small parts um, of her and her like group, like sort of, um, finding uh, the group and this is like just before the firefly sequence but you see them in the background like who are these people and sort of yeah she's trying just to find new stuff and the fact that these people and especially milo could help her people was definitely something that a leader would would look at let's talk about milo what a great character of the 2000s voiced by michael mm. j fox who like what a great pairing together what are your thoughts on one mr milo thatch I think he is, uh, it feels like it's the perfect character to be for, for this movie. The fact that he's a bookish nerd, I don't want to say that, but like, he's very bookish and he's really into, yeah, he's a linguist. Uh, so he's got all the, he knows all the languages and, and it's just the fact that he's just like deeply obsessed with, um, with finding Atlantis and which he gets from his grandfather, which we talked about, but he reminds me a lot of, I don't know if you've seen the movie Stargate. The, um, the James Spader movie, Kurt Russell from the 90s. The character of James Spader, his, I can't remember his character's name, I should, um, very similar to Milo in the sense of he's this one person trying to show, like, there's this civilization that existed before before us. we trying to find, he's like, ah, oh, no, this is, and all the people are like, no, this is just not, this is this is science fiction, not science fact. And then the fact that this um, business person comes and says, here, we're ready for you to, to guide us to this um the civilization and uh i think that's that i wonder if that was a little bit of an influence but i really like the design of miley they make him really skinny they don't make him they make him like not the type you would expect to lead an action adventure movie um and, and throughout the movie he makes he he really defines himself through the um discovering atlantis and at the end when he fights rock like he's able to make he's able to he's clearly like physically outmatched but it's not about physically, it's about mental, it's about mental power. The fact that he's able to outsmart Rock, I think is is really, is a, is a great factor to him. And also the fact that he sa almost sacrifices himself to save Kida when she's still in the um the metal cage, where she he grabs the chain and wraps it around. It's like not completely different character of Milo from the beginning to now and how he sort of evolves. I just, 
I really like that. And Michael J. Fox, his performance is so good. He really adds a lot. And I was looking a little bit about it. And, but he's, he really liked the fact that he got to, he didn't really have to worry about how he looked because he wasn't going to be shown <laughs> on on the movie. So he, he got to just focus on the vocal performance. I think that's really good. And it's also just, even though he sounds like Marty McFly, it's a completely different character to Marty. So I think that's definitely a huge part of his uh, performance. I very much agree. I don't feel any Marty McFly in this performance. It's so funny you say, like, um, he wasn't worried about how he looked, but somehow they've managed to get so much expression out of that voice that it mirrors the animation. My mm. Thatch is a very expressive character. And I echo what you say that um, we get to see a lot of growth and evolution, but not change. Those core characteristics of who he is and his morals and values and principles don't alter. They're only enhanced by what they find. So I like the fact that we don't get that. Um, sometimes we get our good guys, you know, questioning in movies like or like being, get, getting tempted down a different path. And it's like, yeah. no, this is what's right. That. This is what's wrong. Absolutely. So I very, he's a great foil for Rourke, especially in that third act. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. Listen well, all of you. We've mentioned a few already. What's some of your favourite quotes from the film? Oh, God. So I think my favourite quote... The, the more I think about it, and I don't know if it's just the fact that you, you understand where Rourke is coming from, but his line um, when, they discuss, when they're trying to, I think he's trying to persuade um, Milo to, to read the inscription to, to, to tell them where the heart of Atlantis is, because that's when they realize that they're here for the heart of Atlantis. They're still here for money. Um, his quote when he says, academics, you never want to get your hands dirty. Think about it. If you gave back every stolen artifact from a museum, you'd be left with an empty building. And you just sort of, yeah. that, just, that line is just so, um, it just makes sense from his point of view. Why, like, archaeologists, you're going to put in a museum. Like, it's you're still taking it, even though Milo's a different character to what he's talking about. But there's still that sort of aspect of, we have this stuff in museum for a reason, like, and people are going to get paid for it. And if we want to know about these cultures, then it's going to have to be in a museum. Like what do you, there's, there's no high ground when it comes to this sort of stuff. And the fact that I want money doesn't make me any different from you wanting to put it in a museum. That's so funny. Cause one of my quotes is the one before that um, mercenary. I prefer the term adventure capitalist. <laughs> adventure capitalist, which that was, I wrote that down. That's a great quote. I really like that one. Um, but that's also just like back to what he, like that's his mindset. Like it's, absolutely. He, there is no morality in this. This is just what we do. Like he's a capitalist. It's, I'm going to make that um, Indiana Jones connection again because I think this movie is very heavily inspired, inspired oh, by absolutely. the Indiana Jones film. And so, like, this is our Belloc. Like, this is our opposite <laughs> side yeah. opposite side of Indy. If, if Milo is the parallel to Indy, then Rourke is a bit of a mix of some of our Indiana Jones villains because he's not as, say, academic. He doesn't verse uh, Milo on the academic side. It is much more on... Well, that very 1910s, 20s big commander, like he gives me John Wayne presence in a very weird sort of way. Like, it's, very, um, it's, it's James Lee Garner. Marvin. James Garner does the voice, absolutely. Yeah. So it gives he's... me those those Western feels actually in a person of an authoritative male figure. I think that's why they cast him for that character because of his experience in Western and war yes. and action films. He really has that sort of gravitas to that character, which I think really is effective. I also just really like his introduction where he just comes up like, yeah, we're the ones who found it and we're here to, find, to help you 
And then that just that changed throughout the movie. Like you see hints that there's something sort of deceptive about the character. Um, when Helga's like, there's people down here that shouldn't have been. This changes everything. I was like, this changes nothing. There you go. Okay, so something's going on. But yeah, that I think he has some really great um, lines that sort of show that there's no morality in any of this. This is all just about money. This is your badness level. I think we're going to lead to the next um, topic. That is definitely going to be. How evil is the villain? This is so a big I, one. This surprises yeah, me. Like, this this is, guy I'm, is a... Looking at the question and thinking about it, it's actually like one of the most despicable like Disney villains I think of like ever. Like he's he's willing to to wipe out a or not even wipe out, but let a civilization, an ancient civilization that was technologically advanced compared to every other civilization, crumble because of money, like greed. Like greed is like humanity's greatest flaw, and the fact that. It's used throughout many, many villains uh, in movies, not just Disney movies, but like just movies in general as one of the driving forces for a front antagonist is really effective. It's, all, it's, all, it's sad because it's also partially true. There's definitely an aspect of real life. Greed ta- is corrupting. Um, but for this character, it's just money. And it's just, it doesn't give him too much of like a backstory of this, this, and this. Um, it's just... It's just clear cut. It's just this is what it's all about. It's all about money, and it's what it what's differences. Rock. It what it's the it's the difference between Rock and Milo, and that Milo is and with, this is why we care about Milo and the group is that in the end of the day, it's not about money. It's about saving the civilization. That's it's greater than any sum that you could give someone. This rewatch through hit me like this one and my most previous one when I'm an adult now because it's absolutely what you're saying is that there's parts of this humanity humanity these there is no magic there are no superpowers there's nothing these are people these are people here to do despicable things that do despicable things that do not have a conscience in the same way that some of us do mm. and that thought always terrifies me that there's people with different ideologies and principles that that guide them and so the fact that there's such stakes to this character there's the scene where he um has his gun ready to shoot the king you know mm. and i'm gonna count to ten. One, two, cocks the gun nine, nine. yeah if he didn't see the, the uh, if, if he didn't see the river uh the like the little lake and where the, uh, he would have pulled trigger. Like, he pulled yeah, trigger. it's just I remember that being effective, and I even that's something that I remember watching as a kid. Like he just he's he's willing to do anything. Just so he was going to sacrifice. He was going to kill Kida, um, mm. before Milo tells him that only the king knows where the, the heart of Atlantis is. Like there's that sort of stuff where you just go like he yeah he's kind of he's very despicable. Um, especially this I absolutely I hate this this moment from the character. I mean it's intentionally so, but. When just as they're about to leave, he's like, okay, let me see. I've got the crew. I've got the heart of Atlantis. Then he just punches Milo just because of his morals and just his. Just got on his nerves. That, Milo got yeah. on his nerves. Yeah. And that's just, just like, it feels so horrible. And he's got the bleeding from the lip. And it's just like, oh my God. And the fact that he is, um, just phys- he physically outmatches Milo in that third act is really terrifying. Um, and, and, and as I said before, like, he will, he will. He will kill Helga if he if he just wants a larger sum of the money. Even as they're leaving, like I feel like you could do that once you're out of this uh, this uh, the, this uh, circumstance that you're currently in, and worry about that later. But he doesn't care. 
Well, it's very much history is written by the victors, that people in power craft the story, that if he's the only one to survive, he can do all these horrible things because no one's yeah. going to know any different. He's just going to rise. His game plan is to rise up back to the ocean and be, I am the man who discovered Atlantis. Here's mm. the crystal. Give me the money. Give me the credit. Yeah. And that happens worldwide all the time. So, yeah, I think how evil is the villain? I think this one gets overlooked. I I don't need the change of him to crystal form. When I rewatched this recently, I'm like, that is unnecessarily in my opinion. What are your thoughts? Okay. I really like it because I just like the sort of body horror of it. Uh, I remember that being really (laughs) effective as a kid. Um, Just the fact that, like, they set up the the idea that you don't touch her. Like, she's, she's made of energy and... I think the crystal only works if it's merged with someone royalty because I really love, I mean, I'm slightly off topic, but I really love when the king is talking about the fact that the crystal, as they sacrifice, as um, each king died and they had that sort of. Um, it merges culture. with the memory. It merges so the and the memories and it grows a conscience. Fascinating so concept. Fascinating. The idea of the mother being the, the most recent person to merge and it picking Keita, like there's sort of that mother daughter connection. And as she. Uh, unmerges from the crystal she still has the bracelet which they set up at the beginning which is so cool but with um with rock it's like it doesn't work because he's not of of royalty so it it turns him into that crystal monster do you do you know like specifically when he freezes and then there's that sort of jump scare when he still comes back and then he explodes with the uh, propeller yeah i think maybe maybe because we just like killed off helga even though we don't see her die because we get to see her shoot the thing first i think disney yeah. just will not outright kill their characters on screen so that if we mm. kill a monster we're not doing a bad thing so we ha- will make a monster form and so i just feel that's slightly unnecessary and just takes it like makes it one step unnecessarily from that i'm cool with it just because he is a pretty horrible character <laughs> so his fate was never going to be redeemed and you want to see him die in a pretty bad way and i think that's also that goes back to the indiana jones sort of the villain is always it's either if it's a face melt or they fall into uh, a a river of crocodiles or they become extremely old or uh, what happened to Ivana Sparko in Kingdom? She get too much information from the aliens. Like this, it's stuff like that where they have to where their greed and their losses is eventually their downfall, and the thing that they want eventually is the one that kills them. Like I think of that with um, Donovan's character from uh, Crusade, the fact that he wants the the, the cup of life and he picks the wrong one and it just ages him like complete yeah. contrast with what he wants and the crystal is what he is what rock wants and he turns into a crystal man and, and then explodes he got it there it he is got it. <laughs> and that's what, and that's what, isn't that what miley says like when he slits slits him or he cuts him but um yeah i just think that whole sequence is good but that goes back to just miley being able to outsmart him one song i have put one song what are your thoughts on the score and soundtrack? Because I was shocked going back. I mean, James Newton Howard, big name to attach to the film. And oh, yeah. I think he did Dinosaur previous to this. Am I right? He did Dinosaur, and that's what um, Kirk Wise and Gary Drowsdale? Yes. Trustdale? Ah, I can never get that. Of them. Damn it. Um, <laughs> they, they, I think they saw Dinosaur or an early version with the score, and they were just like, this is the guy we want for Atlantis. Um, no, I, that... I had a feeling it was that because I thought, because I've got in my notes as well, like I wonder if the directors of Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback of Notre Dame, 
plus Titanic, a big serious drama about a ship. Mm. That's how you sell this film. And if you want a more serious Disney adventure slash period film, you need a score to match that. So that makes total sense. Oh yeah. Um, I love James Newton Howard as a composer. There's he's, he's, I haven't talked and I haven't I've talked very little about the score because I just there's a lot I would like to talk about here, but I have in my notes it slaps when talking about the score of the movie. Um it is just really gorgeous of the sounds. I really love the way that they like James Newton Howard is such a chameleon of a composer. He's very versatile. He's um he just is able to he doesn't have like a specific style of comp- of like when he writes music. He's not like a John Williams or a James Horner or a Hans Zimmer where they have those late motifs. He's able to just they change almost like like easily to a to a different sort of tone and uh, and genre. And with Atlantis, the way he sort of designed the Atlantean sort of music, I'm trying to remember my notes, but. Um, I can't find it, whatever. Um, he really incorporated sort of Indian music and chimes and vocals, especially into the Atlantean sort of score, and especially during the, the scene with when Kida emerges with the crystal, you have those sort of like faint chimes and sort of like a child voice throughout that sequence. And I really love the, the, the last piece of music in the movie when the camera pans out to see this newly, um, newly alive uh, city where all the... Uh, um, like hovercrafts are flying around, Atlantis is, is 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 striving, and you have this really triumphant music. How it starts off sort of with the Atlantean sort of like culture and music, and and, and themes, and then it just comes to the dun 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 dun, dun and just uh, that really bombastic sort of uh, Indiana Jones sort of like influence sort of um, adventure sort of score that Williams like sort of um popularized um yeah i love the score it's so beautiful and that it's that great blend of that um world music and adventure music and i think it's a really great um uh merging of both styles and it really works for the movie i love how you mentioned that because the piece that stands out to me by far is when um they're spending their night in atlantis in the like cultural celebrations and mm. in the midst of eating their food and playing with the kids and whatnot, there's this really upbeat, but as you said, worldly and cultural music. And I think even you see some of the Atlanteans playing playing instruments. I think, I think that's a part of it, yeah. Yeah, so I like that we're you're seeing this whole culture that they've created for the film and that scores, you need to have the right piece that accompanies that because that's what is selling you on the realism of it all. So absolutely, yeah. I love it. Any other thoughts on the score and soundtrack? Um, yeah, I really, yeah, I, I think I've, I've, I've said everything you happy? I wanted to say. It's just, yeah, really, it's an underrated score, especially from from Disney. And I think, I'm trying to think, I don't think Newton Howard has done any other animated movies after this. Oh, I'm trying Ray to and the Last Dragon. How could I forget Ray and the Last Dragon? But, yeah, um, I think he definitely is an underrated composer, um, especially because, like, he gets so many Oscar nods and never he's never mm. won. And I think there's a couple of times where I would make an argument that he would win. I think his, his score for uh, Shaman's The Village is, is, is incredible. And I would nominate his score for, for Atlantis. So it's it's a really underrated score, and I think people should know more about it because it, it definitely is, it stands out from a lot of other Disney um, scores, and especially since Disney films do win. I mean, Alan Menken's, like, the king Oh, yes. As far as Disney uh, composers go, like the, he's won like seven, eight Oscars, and a few of them have been for original score, like Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast. And I think he totally could have won for this. 
it's funny. I think it just comes down to tone of the film. Like I think mm. they just don't know how to sell it, so that makes it more difficult. Because I mean, Dinosaur, Atlantis, and Raya as your three Disney films is an odd, odd mix, and tends to be on that more serious end, which is yeah, yeah very funny. Practically perfect in every way. Uh, Jake, anything we haven't talked about that you want to bring up before we wrap up? Hmm. So we, we went through a lot more than I. I'm glad that we kind of spread it out with um with the amount that's in this movie. There's that early like the I guess the montage. It's sort of like a montage when they're heading to Atlantis. This is like before the Firefly attack. Um, where they're sort of listening to Milo like where to go. There's that one part where there's like a where it's between two ways and it's like oh we're gonna go left. And there's just that weird giant bug monster that shows up <laughs> at, like at, just randomly. I was just like wait what. I think in pre-production they wanted to. There was a. It was a longer film. I think it was originally like two hours and thirty minutes. Like was originally their their plan, and they had a bunch oh. of like small sequences. I think maybe that was going to be a part of it. It was going to be a bigger part. Um, they're going to be attacked by some giant bug monster, but they turned into just like a funny joke. Like, oh, it was the wrong way. Oh, I held the map the upside down. So um, I just remember that being weird. I totally forgot that even happened. <laughs> so when I saw, it, I was like, this is completely random. Um, I think it's something? funny that you mentioned that this movie was supposed to be longer because that is my biggest complaint about modern movies is that the two-hour mark is too long. I think a tight one minute 40 that mm. keeps you engaged in the adventure throughout is what makes this one so rewatchable, actually. Also for animated movies, it's a lot to animate a, mm. a long movie. Like that's two hours or so. And that's why Disney had always tried to keep it to 90 minutes to 100 because if you've got a deadline... You got animation wise, you you don't have a lot of time. Like twenty four frames a second times that by however long the movie's going to be, it's a lot of work. Um, but um, I really like the. Um, this is something we got to talk about. I really love when Disney movies open with the Disney logo and it's a different variation. Yes. Like, oh my god, I love the opening of this movie where you see the shimmers in the water. It's the underwater cave, and you see the Disney logo, and then you see like the spark that lights. That's the circle around the Disney logo. There's just so many uh, movies that do that, and I, it always sticks with me when a film has a variation. Like I remember very vividly the Lilo and Stitch one, where you see it's like a transmission, then it's like abducted by like an, a UFO or something, but um. There's, I just remember that aesthetic choice to open Atlantis really complementing the movie and also just setting the tone of what this movie is going to be. It's just, it looks really good as well. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it always lets you know that you're in for something a little bit different and mm. does start to get you along for the ride. And as you talked about earlier that we get the Plato quote, but we also get the Atlantis written in the Atlantean language and then it flips around yeah. to English and says Atlantis. That's like, so cool, that is yeah. So good. Gotta, to, vibes, like. gotta mention that um so the i can't remember the guy who made it the, the uh the atlantean language but the a is like a sort of a spiral with the mm. dot that is according to the directors supposed to be a map to the heart of atlantis the heart of atlantis is the dot and the circle is supposed to be around the cave and then that inner circle is atlantis itself they really like came up with oh, so many so great cool. ideas for the language and for that for the letter a it's it's a lot more than just what it is and that is sort of like the logo of the movie the spiral with the dot it's it's what the movie sort of um sort of is um it's it's yeah it's logo. it's the emblem sense. of it absolutely it's the emblem of the movie. now jake I know you wanted to mention mm. the sequel. 
Yes. Milo's return. And when you asked me, may I please speak about this? And I said, yeah. I have not seen it. So please go off. <laughs> so can you give us a good five minutes about five Milo's minutes, return? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, so what's interesting about this, and I think they do this with a lot of their Disney um, um, products, is that they will try and make a TV show if it's successful. I believe they did that with Hercules. I think they did that with Tarzan. Um, I Aladdin, they did that. Emperors, Lilo, like, and Emperors, Lilo. The big ones that do well, they will try and make it into a new franchise. And they obviously did that with Atlantis. Um, unfortunately, because Box Office Wise, it didn't do well, they decided to scrap the TV show. Um, but they had already, in pre-production, they already was doing a few episodes. So what they did was they took three episodes and just made it into a direct-to-DVD sequel. Uh, yes. Um, I, it's, it's not great. Uh, the biggest problem with the movie is I love how the, the first movie ends. Milo decides to stay in Atlantis with Kida, um, and everyone, they all get the gold and like, oh, it's only wish there was more we could do. Ah, we've got enough. And then they go back and they tell their story to, um, oh, I've blanked on the character's Whitmore. name, but Whitmore, and they're just like, this is it. It's done. Um, but Milo's return, the group comes back to Atlantis and it's like, there's trouble up, 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 upstairs. we gotta, we got to figure out what's going on. And so that was sort of the idea is that it was going to be called Team Atlantis and they would be going like all these mythologies throughout the world. It's all connected to Atlantis and they're just trying to, trying to stop this sort of like, it's like X-Files sort of like, we go to this town and there's this mystery going on. And the first episode is, uh, is ships being attacked by Leviathan no, Leviathan, uh, a Kraken. Sorry, they call it a Kraken. My bad. I was thinking about Leviathan uh, in the movie, but um, but yeah, um, who can control people, and they almost and it can almost control people. Um, it can almost control Audrey and um, Vinny, um, but then they're able to to, to sink the um, the monster. And it's a little bit more action based in that episode. Then there's one where the second episode or the second part is these dust coyotes. And this greedy um, businessman has stolen these artifacts from this cave. And there's this um, sort of like spirit who like tells them that like you cannot, this has to be, that, that it's what he's doing is wrong in that they're trying to get the uh, artifacts back to this um, spirit um, and how they're sort of connected because you see the stone guardians, the crystal guardians in the cave. Um, then this, the third episode's weird. This guy thinks he's Odin. And he steals this um, like statue that has Atlantean that has an Atlantean crystal, and he uses it to summon uh, Ragnarok. So it really goes into like Norse mythology, and um, and oh, Kraken is uh, I can't remember what Kraken is. It's like myth- it's all these mythologies. It's really not good. And okay. the ending of the of the movie is Kida using this the um, the staff to lift Atlantis up. And it becomes a part of the rest of the world. It's back as an island, and and there's the last line, which is like, "The world was never the same. It was so much better." And I think it was supposed to be like a show, and they just condense it to this ninety-minute long movie. Um, you know how you're talking about Disney princesses have their um, sidekick um, animal. Well, yep. they do have a sidekick animal. I can't remember the name, but it's this lava dog monster that eats rocks. And okay. it's just with them from the beginning. Um, but everyone comes back except for um, Michael J. Fox. It's um, it's James Arnold Taylor, who is 
he's Ratchet in the Ratchet and Clank games. He's uh, Obi Wan Kenobi in the Clone Wars. He's ex- extensive filmography, um, and he just sounds nothing like Michael J. Fox. So <laughs> Milo just sounds completely different. Some of the characters feel completely different. Kida definitely a little bit because she's such an outsider. She's part of the team, and she's looking at the world, and she's got so many questions about. Why is this under a glass? Why is this uh, behind a glass case? And Milo's trying to tell Oh, very her Wonder protection. Woman, that sort of thing. It's like Wonder like, Woman yeah. sort of stuff. And it just yeah. feels like not the character. I'm sure she'd be curious about the world, but it just doesn't fit. And it makes her, it makes her naive to a, to a degree, um, which I wasn't a big fan of. Um, the animation isn't as good as the movie, obviously. Um, there's some aspects which aren't as memorable, but yeah, it's not the best. And it kind of ruins the first movie. So this puts a lot more pieces in place in my mind because this is often on the worst of Disney sequel lists. Mm. And that makes much more sense that it was, I did not know it was the three episodes because very infamously they did that with Belle's Magical World, the third of the Beauty and the Beast films. Oh, Beauty and the Beast. So, yes. And they did it with Cinderella as well. Cinderella 2, Dreams Come True, is the three different stories. And even I think um, maybe Tarzan and Jane, I think that's just the TV show episodes as well. So this is Mm -hmm. definitely what they were doing in this early 2000s period, shipping things that weren't making it from the Disney Toon Studios and putting it on the straight-to-DVD. And we just got so much shovelware about this time that I've just really been able to stay clear from it because your, your yeah, animation quality <laughs> drops, your story quality drops. And as you said, like, some things just wrap up so neatly that I don't need the continuing adventures. Exactly, well. yeah. I'm cool with ambiguousness and not needing the whole film to come full circle with characters and setting. Like, it's it ends where Milo needs to be, with Atlantis, in, in Atlantis with Kida. Um, and we, it just, it feels like, and maybe just because I just watched like the movie just after watching Atlantis. So that impact is like completely lessened, but the fact that the, the beginning of the movie is them coming back and like, Hey, we need you Milo. And it's like, that time hasn't really like fully, uh, there's not much time between the two movies uh, from my experience at least. So it just feels like, Oh, he's Atlantis and now he's back. And now Atlantis is up with the rest of the world and now they are all happy and that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's, it's not great. It's not, and it's, Sorry, not to get, I'm talking too much, um, but one more thing I'll just say about Milo's um, return. Throughout the movie, Keita's starting to question if she should hide the heart of it, of Atlantis because uh, my father was worried it was going to become a weapon for the world and she's, like, starting to question her decision throughout the, mm. uh, the movie and it comes till the end when she realises we should spread it, uh, technology uh, with the world and it's just, like, feels really weird of a character change to be like, oh, I think we should hide the crystal. And it's just like, what? Just, but yeah, it's it's not good. Jake, if there was a summarization of Atlantis, if you were trying to pitch this movie to someone, because I think it still is a bit of an underrated, what is your sell elevator pitch, oh. quick line for the film? Like, this is what you're going to get. This is why you should watch this one. It's it's Indiana Jones influenced animated film about the event about exploring and finding Atlantis, um, with a with a with a dash of the Mummy and a and a and a tip of uh, of Stargate. Um, it, it, yeah, pure f- fantasy action adventure for an animated audience. Love it, Jake. Thank you so much for coming on today. This was thank an so amazing much. episode. We kept it and under two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Goal achieved. <laughs> and we will see you all next time.